Good morning and welcome to Week on Three with me, Janice Wong, where we look at highlights from the past week here on Radio Three. In the next half hour, we will get some expert analysis of the latest easing of social distancing measures. Also on this program, we will take a look at the decision by TVB not to broadcast the Oscars next month for the first time in over five decades. But first, we take a look at something wild, an annual nature spotting event that takes place at the end of the month. The City Nature Challenge is a global community event that aims to document urban biodiversity. Anyone can take part by simply logging the wildlife we see in Hong Kong on a phone app. In this week's trash talk, Marcy Trent Long spoke to eco activist Benita Chick and Sean Martin from the WWF Hong Kong, who are taking part in the event. Sean began by explaining how the event that first started in California spread to Hong Kong. So all back in 2016, that was the first City Nature Challenge, and basically it all started with two people. Lila Higgins and Alison Young from California Academy of Sciences, based in San Francisco, and the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. And they also knew people from iNaturalist, which is the app that、mm. one uses from that. And so they decided to create a little friendly competition, a rivalry, if you like, because there's always one between San Francisco and Los Angeles, and to see. Who could、uh, log the most observations of nature within their particular cities? And Los Angeles won hands down most <laughs>、oh, observations,、really? absolutely. But they've obviously found a way to sort of this could be a fantastic way to move out to different cities. So the next year they opened it up to different partners in the United States. The year after that, in 2018, it went international, and that's when Hong Kong first joined. And、uh, from that, it's been growing ever since. So, it started off with two cities in April 2016, and this year we're expecting about 436 worldwide. Oh, that's great! 400, and is it still a competition?、Ah. A little bit, or is this now moved into like a communal thing? Well, we can, you know, obviously with COVID and everything like that, the main org it used to be a competition, a friendly competition,、um, but with COVID being as it is, they wish to、uh, highlight the more collaborative nature of、um, of biodiversity monitoring using the apps, so that people don't feel obliged or compelled to go out and you know put themselves at un- in un- unnecessary risk. So,、right. so that's the the issue, and it still is for this particular CNC、uh, upcoming one. It's it's a collaborative aspect. It's probably a good idea. Absolutely. Well, then, Benita, how does it work? How how do we?、Uh, so basically, there's an app、uh, called iNaturalist, and、uh, you can use it anytime, not、uh, specific to the City Nature Challenge. And it's a citizen science app、uh, available in many languages, not only in English. So basically, what you do is take a Picture of an animal, of a plant, and you can either self-identify what you see, whether it's a spider or, or, or a crab or whatever that is, or somebody who is expert will help you to identify as well. So basically, the City Nature Challenge is using iNaturalist as a way of recording the observation. And correct me if I'm wrong, Sean. I think you can <laughs> uh, uh, you can do like the most number of observation、uh, and also the most different、uh, number of species as as a different matrix of uh, uh, in the City Nature Challenge. That's right. Yeah. So basically, the way The way iNaturalist works, the way the City Nature Challenge works, is, is that、um, the location has already been pre-programmed into iNaturalist and the date and the time. So all one really needs to do is just go out on those four days, Friday 30th of April to Monday 3rd of May, kids, and go out and take 
pictures on iNaturalist wherever it is. No pets. Okay, we don't want any pets, <laughs> no we don't fish. want any selfies, <laughs> nothing like that, and no indoor potted plants, please. iNaturalist is basically a, uh, it's a, it's an app for logging wild species, really, but of course, urban sort of park um, wildlife plants and flowers, they're fine, um, so long as you click the captive cultivated toggle, but honestly, iNaturalist is so simple to use, it could not be easier to get involved in this global event. And yeah, I, I think you get fun. a lot of uh, students and schools involved. And uh, it's a, I, I think there's an inter-school competition where the, the, the different students are, are going out and they can go near the school and find out what's near them. And I think it's a great education tool. I mean, even like I study biology myself, every time I see something that I don't know, I, I learn something about them. So it's, it's fun, it's competitive, and it's very educational. Absolutely. So iNaturalist not only takes the picture and it tells you what it is, is that it? Or? There is an AI component. So iNaturalist will offer suggestions of what it is that you've taken a picture of. But actually, I don't encourage people to use it. I mean, if you take a picture of a spider, you can just type in spider um, in the what did you see aspect. And other iNaturalist users will actually be on hand to um, further identify it down to species level. So you kind of get that engagement, really, with other uh, with other users. Oh, I kind that's of see, fun. I, yeah, I always see that iNaturalist is basically you know, the social media of biodiversity monitoring, you get that engagement with other users. And, yeah, you know. so, so I think different experts, whether you are, are more of a butterfly, sometimes they would yeah. debate what exactly is those species. And uh, uh, some, some of the scientists have used uh, the data from iNaturalist. Uh, I think in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, there's a morph researcher, which use, because morph is so hard to track mm. uh, and rely on citizen science. So this is not only just a fun thing, but it actually contributes to actual science. Oh, that's super fun. Okay, mm. so, you know, the question of the moment is, we, we've all noticed the birds are singing louder, right? That There seems to be a few more animals out and about during, uh, because of COVID. So what's the vote? Do you think we'll have more biodiversity now during well, uh, this one? Well, for the actual City Nature Challenge itself, um, Hong Kong has traditionally done really well in the most species category. We have consistently come into the top five of, um, you know, and again, like last year, there was 244 cities. And we have surprised the world with how much biodiversity we actually have in a territory so small. I've had conversations with organizers who say, Hong Kong, really? Isn't it just yeah. shopping and, you know, <laughs> the harbor? And okay, it surprises me too, right? But actually, the in terms of will we see more biodiversity, I mean, from our uh, WWF records and AFCD records, we seem to think there's about six, six and a half sort of thousand species or something like that around Hong Kong per se. Um, but on iNaturalist, we seem to think we have about just over 10,000. So um, huh. will we see it all? It really depends on how people are engaged with it. You know, in terms of the City Nature Challenge, will people go out? Um, it is there. It is definitely there. People just have to find it. As the WWF Hong Kong Sean Martin and Benita Chick speaking to Marcy Trent Long on Trash Talk. (music) 
many people may be cheering the reopening of beaches, swimming pools and playgrounds as the government further relaxed COVID restrictions. But should we really be taking a more cautious approach? Should the government have waited till after the Easter break? All this was discussed on Tuesday's Backchat program with epidemiologist Professor Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong and Dr. Eris Leung, the Chief Operating Officer of Town Health Group. Professor Cowling began by telling Backchat hosts Hugh Chiverton and Ada Wong what he thought of the decision to relax social distancing measures. I'm a little bit worried that we haven't quite got to zero and if we relax everything, there's an increased risk of a, an outbreak like the gym outbreak or, or maybe a, an outbreak somewhere else, um, which sets us back and then we might need to bring measures back. But on the other hand, if we have a bit of luck in the next couple of weeks, then maybe we will get to zero anyway. Uh, so it's, it's really a difficult call for the government to make because the numbers are now so low. Uh, it's almost zero, I would say, almost zero. Um, why is there um, such a big importance on getting down to zero? I mean, we can't just live in a bubble. Uh, you know, um, the Secretary of Commerce and Economic Development is talking to a number of countries allowing travelling bubbles. So when you have foreigners and tourists coming in, uh, for sure, you know, there might be some imported cases. And, um, you know, getting down to zero, what, what's the significance? I, I would imagine that, so if, if we get to zero, then the risk, as you mentioned, would be from infections coming into the city from outside. I guess, I don't know for sure, but I guess if we were to establish travel bubbles, it would only be with places that are also at zero. And so there wouldn't be a risk then of importation of infections if we allow people to come in from the bubble without undergoing quarantine. But it is, of course, a risk. Um, I, uh, I think staying at zero is going to be difficult for a long time. But for short periods of time, it should be possible. If you look at what's uh, been achieved in, in the mainland, in Taiwan, in Australia, New Zealand, they've managed to stay at zero for quite long periods of time. So we could go for that. And then, as you said, we'll be living in a bubble. But at least it, within the bubble, we can be relatively back to normal. Uh, an email from uh, Alison. As you reported in the news, the vast majority of our new COVID infections are coming from imported cases, who are thankfully caught at the airport before they can put the Hong Kong public at risk. However, I'm still a little confused as to how this is occurring. How are these individuals even allowed to board their flights? Aren't they tested before boarding, or are they simply required to produce negative COVID test results, which presumably can be falsified, before they depart their before they depart their port of embarkation? Perhaps one of your guests knows the answer to these questions. Professor Cowling, do you know? Well, so when people are infected, they, they don't test positive immediately. After infection, it takes a little bit of time until the virus can become detectable. So it's quite possible that if someone's required to do a COVID test two days or three days before departure, it could be negative. But by the time they board the plane, if they were tested at that point, they might be positive. They might still be negative. By the time they land in Hong Kong, they might at that point have turned positive. Um, because it, from, the, from when you're infected you're not immediately positive on a, on a virus test. It takes some time for the virus to re replicate and, and get up to a higher level in your body so that then you can, you can be tested positive. Okay. But, but for sure, you know, um, th this is only a very, very low percentage of people who would have that. I mean, I mean to be tested negative and then three days later to be found positive. Uh, so the majority of people that we, we test uh, the, air, so the majority of people that come into Hong Kong from outside, if they are going to test positive, they'll test positive on arrival. And then a minority test positive a little bit later. It's about 70 or 80 percent within the first few days of arrival, if not on arrival, maybe another 10 or 20 percent 
later in quarantine and then only a tiny fraction in the third week of, of quarantine. But it is possible that people can arrive test negative and still be infected. That's why we have the quarantine. We're joined uh, now by Dr. Aries Lung-Kwok-Ling, who's the Chief Operating Officer of the uh, Town Health Group. Uh, Dr. Lung, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning, Ida. Good morning, Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us. So we've got some of this uh, relaxation, opening, uh, you know, uh, beaches, uh, which I'm sure will be very welcome by many swimming pools, uh, playgrounds uh, and things like this. This is, uh, I guess, uh, good news all around. Yes, I look forward to swimming myself too. Mm. Um, uh, is this appropriate, do you think, before Easter, or do you think that w- these sort of changes would have been better done after the holiday? I think it's appropriate to do it in Easter because Hong Kong people have been bored in indoor for a very long time, and with the relaxation uh, related to reduction in the case low, it's all anticipated, and it will be a bit too uh, too tight if we uh, keep keep pushing it back after Easter. Are there any advice, uh, you know, from you uh, to Hong Kong people to 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 keep cautious uh, in the you know in the long weekend ahead? Yes, Ada. Now, uh, uh, although the, the premises can open, I think that the uh, self-protection measures, such as wearing masks, strict adhesion to hand hygiene, and not touching the face, not touching those, those important parts, uh, I mean the, the eyes, the mouth, these are all very important, and everybody please stick to them in order to prevent a comeback of the virus. Uh, there are also changes to the... Quarantine requirements, of course. Steve on Facebook says, as someone that spent six weeks trying to get home and will now finally this weekend get home after going to the UK to just after two weeks' visit, I find it perplexing. UK visitors are treated like they have the bubonic plague when you have COVID much more rampant in USA, Europe, and look at Germany, Italy, and France now going into a new lockdown, but they aren't treated the same way. How much of this is really politics at play? That is uh, from... Uh, Steve Uh, and uh, Mike says uh, with random controlled testing of a number of successful treatments coming to the forefront we as the general public stay fixated on a one item solution vaccines are not the only solution in fact natural or wild virus inoculation gives us much longer and better proven immunization than the vaccines Early treatment with monoclonal antibiotics has been proven in a number of random controlled testing with thousands of patients to stop serious complications that COVID-19 presents. Except for a few isolated areas, Brazil as one exception, COVID new cases are dropping worldwide. There has been no proven scientific reason for keeping our children out of schools. Our mandated lockdowns and mandated isolated blanket testing block by block, as we have seen in the past few months, is police state tactics at its tail-chasing best. COVID will be all but over by the end of April, only to return this fall for another wave is what I've read by a number of different renowned virologists. To continue to push vaccines to an unwilling community, whether effective or not, makes government seem desperate, which alone doesn't give us confidence. But then again, when has government of late been concerned about our confidence? Just follow orders, you patriots. That is from Mike. Dr. Lung, if people are vaccinated, um, should they still be quarantined if they come into Hong Kong? If they have a certificate to say that I've been vaccinated, um, you know, with two jabs already from the UK, could that be lifted? Now, the science is still uncertain. Now, we got only science uh, we in medicine. Now, 
uh, all the vaccines are shown to be able to prevent very serious disease and hospitalization. However, the ability to prevent subclinical infection, that means people look well, but they are actually infected and can spread the virus, is still unknown with what, whichever brand. And there was some sort of quarantine from areas, particularly in those with uh, mutated strains, uh, seems safe. So we need to, to hit a balance and to take time to find out the truth. Uh, for the time being, a restriction from, uh, of, of visitors from uh, areas known to be still heavily infected seems safe. And in fact, I have colleagues, I have medical colleagues, who, who received the, the, same, uh, the treatment the same as other fellow citizens. And it takes them more than a month to return from some areas in Europe to Hong Kong. So um, that, that is what everybody pays for the safety of the rest of the people. But then the rationale behind travel bubbles um, it will be another thing. You know, it, it uh, remains uh, to, to be seen whether, for example, you know, Singapore, Japan, you know, they still have the occasional case. But if we, if, uh, uh, you know, a bilateral uh, travel bubble uh, uh, arrangement can be made, then, you know, we can go to Japan and they can come to Hong Kong. You know, with still a few cases around. Now, let's look at a small area in order to be, to be more precise. Say Singapore. Both in Hong Kong and Singapore, the number of cases, uh, uh, new cases there is few, number one. And number two, the people have been vaccinated. And number three, they have had a negative virus uh, with, the, with the test. Then the chance of a traveler holding the, the virus and transporting it from one city to another is similar to what he does in his local city. And since both areas are low, lowly infected, then the risk of spreading the infection further is very low. Now, the argument would, would be more complicated when we talk about a bigger area, for example, Japan or another bigger, even bigger country, unless the baseline infection rate of the, that country visited and to and from is also very low. Then the same principle as I described would, would apply. It is a matter of probability and a matter of safety to all the people in Hong Kong. That was Dr. Eris Leung, the Chief Operating Officer of Town Health Group, and epidemiologist Professor Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong, speaking on Tuesday's Backchat program. Now, we probably don't want to admit it, but the coronavirus pandemic has turned many of us into couch potatoes. So the news that TVB won't be broadcasting the Oscars next month for the first time in more than 50 years is a real disappointment to many of us. The broadcaster says it's purely a commercial decision. But it comes after Bloomberg News reported earlier this month that Beijing had told state media to play down the awards and not show the ceremony live. The order is believed to have been issued because of the nomination of Do Not Split, a short documentary on Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests, as well as the four Oscar nods for Chinese-born U.S. director Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. She's come under fire for past remarks seen as critical of China. 
On our Hong Kong Today program, Mike Weeks asked Dr. Christoph van der Troost, an assistant professor at the Chinese University's Center for China Studies, what he made of TVB's decision. They say it's purely commercial. Um, I think uh, it's, it's unlikely that it, that it is really the reason. Um, there, uh, this year is the first year in quite a long time that a Hong Kong film has been nominated for Best Foreign Film. Um, and so it seems uh, strange to cancel uh, the broadcasting of the Oscars uh, in this particular year. This is Better Days you're talking about, which has been nominated for Best International Feature Film, and that's actually directed by Derek Jung, the son of actor and TVB Deputy General Manager Eric Jung, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so that makes it even stranger. So you're saying it's not purely a commercial decision. What do you think then is behind it? Well, yeah, of course, I'm just only speculating. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I think there are some uh, similarities to uh, RTHK stopping to broadcast uh, the BBC World Service uh, last month, um, which also followed a uh, similar uh, order from uh, the, the mainland uh, authorities. Okay, the, the reports say mainland media are banned from live streaming the show on the 26th of next month. Does that mean TV stations in Hong Kong are now also effectively ba- bound by such orders? I'm not sure. Um, I think the decision by TVB might be coming uh, from their own management, uh, maybe just to uh, avoid uh, any trouble uh, they might have given the ban uh, um, or the restrictions uh, in the mainland. Okay, the Global Times has warned the Academy of Motion, Picture, Arts and Sciences that hurting the feelings of Chinese audiences could lead to a heavy loss in the mainland film market, which last year was the world's biggest. Do you believe there'll be serious repercussions for the US film industry if if Nomadland or Do Not Split uh, wins Oscars? There might be. There have been a number of boycotts and sanctions uh, in in recent days, uh, and, uh, well, uh, there, there are already a lot of restrictions on uh, U.S. films being shown in the mainland. Um, there's a the quota um, of uh, foreign films uh, for each year that can be screened uh, in the mainland. So there are already a lot of restrictions, and so there might be uh, some more uh, if uh, one of these films uh, wins the award. I and mean, the boycotts you're talking about in recent days, I presume, are the ones on H&M, H&M and Nike and other other groups like that. What what sort of impact have they had, those boycotts? Um, Well, I think there there has been been some impact. Uh, I was reading earlier that uh, a lot of the uh, online uh, shops uh, have stopped offering the products of Nike uh, and uh, and Adidas. Um, On the other hand, there are also reports that uh, that, uh, some of these uh, new Nike shoes are still selling uh, quite well. Uh, when they are being offered. Um, so uh, it, I think it has an impact, uh, but uh, it's, it's still not very clear how, how serious this, this impact is. And it, it's also unclear how long this uh, boycott will, will uh, last. Um, I was also uh, reading that uh, Premier Li Keqiang uh, was uh, visiting, um, I think, BASF, uh, the German uh, manufacturer, uh, which uh, delivers to uh, Nike, so this might be a signal that uh, they don't want the boycott to be too uh, extreme, especially since uh, these are uh, companies that produce sportswear and the Olympics are coming up. Okay, just finally back to the Oscars, Dr. Van den Troost. 
What, what significance do you think there is for Hong Kong that uh, TVB won't be broadcasting the most prestigious film awards ceremony uh, that this year has so much interest for people here? Well, yeah, they have been broadcasting it for uh, so many decades, and, and stopping it now uh, seems to signal uh, a broader shift uh, in, in Hong Kong's uh, culture and, and media sphere, uh, which has been quite uh, freewheeling over the last few few decades. Um, so I think the significance uh, lies there. Um, it also connects to this uh, campaign or this, this, this uh, series of actions uh, that has uh, been uh, playing out over the last few weeks, uh, where there's a lot of pressure on uh, Hong Kong's cultural sphere, uh, like uh, what is happening at M+. Um, the campaign against the movie uh, or the documentary Inside the Red Brick Wall, which deals with uh, the protests. Uh, and the occupation of uh, uh, Polytechnic University, um, the pressure on the Arts Development Council to uh, stop funding uh, so-called yellow uh, organizations. Um, so, well, I think it, it should be seen in this context. That was Dr. Christoph van der Troost, an assistant professor at the Chinese University's Center for China Studies, speaking on our Hong Kong Today program. And finally, we end this week on three with a look at what Steve James has been up to in his afternoon drive. That's it from me for now. Over to Steve. We gotta go fix the plasma fusion boiler. This get a bad feeling off the sky. Is the Steve James Tuesday afternoon drive? Are you stupider than a monkey? Okay, it's birthday time. Birthday time. Uh, let's glance back in time to this day, 1945. Born this day, one Eric Clapton. Guitarist, singer, songwriter, has been a member of the Roosters, Casey Jones and the Engineers, John Mayles, Blues Breakers, it's all good stuff, the Yardbirds, Cream. He was also a member of Blind Faith and, of course, formed Derek and the Dominoes, who had the uh, 1972 UK number seven single, Layla. As a solo artist, Clapton scored the 1974 US number one single, I Shot the Sheriff, and the 1992 UK number five and US number 25 single, Tears in Heaven. Here, from his unplugged show for MTV in the early 90s, you know I like playing this one. The Great Blue Standard, written by Jimmy Cox in 1923, is Eric Clapton. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. Once I live Hello. 